right, well, this is Systematic Theology 2. We're in Christology. If you've been reading along in the book and you have the schedule, you'll know sort of where we're at today. We are on track, although we might get behind a bit today. That's fine. Some of these topics are minor in the sense of they don't take long to cover. Others are more controversial and debated, so they take more time. So let's open in prayer, and we'll jump into the baptism of Jesus. Lord, we give you thanks today for this time to be here, time to study your word, time to open the Bible and look at the life of Christ. Thank you for bringing us through the, the person of Christ, his deity, his humanity, who he is, and helping us understand where people have gone wrong in church history regarding that doctrine. Help us now to understand the importance of what happened in the life and death of Christ and the resurrection. I would pray that this would lift our hearts up, that it would draw us closer to you, Lord, through what has gone on in Jesus' ministry on this earth. We pray that this would be the case this morning. Amen. So we are on today the baptism of Jesus. We're going to look at the, the temptation spend most of our time on those two things. We'll talk a little bit about the transfiguration and hopefully about the Holy Spirit's ministry to Jesus. And so let's look at the baptism of Jesus. Too often people think of the baptism of Jesus as like our baptism. And there's even a a phrase in the book here that I'm going to disagree with a bit on that. Not that it's horribly wrong, but I think it's not found in Scripture necessarily, so we've got to be careful about this. What is the baptism of Jesus? First, we'll just read some of the passages, then talk about the purpose. There's a reason that Jesus got baptized. And I'll give you a hint. It's not the same reason that we get baptized. It's far different than our baptism. However, it's often said that Jesus' baptism is linked up with ours or similar to ours. Uh, I, would, I would disagree with that because he gives a different reason in Scripture. So let's look at the shortest one. We'll go through these passages. I want to read all of these to you. They're slightly different. Mark always gives us the shortest. He is um, moving quickly in his gospel, so he gives us a short recount. And so the life of Christ, really his public ministry, begins with the baptism. So we don't know a whole lot after the, the virgin conception and birth. He's about probably two years old when the Magi come. Because Herod sends soldiers to kill boys two years and younger. And then he's 12 when they go up to the temple and he stays behind. And that whole scenario plays out. And then the next thing we know, he's getting baptized. There's not much for 20-something years of his life there. And we can assume, like the text says, he's growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Mark 1.9, now it happened that in these days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So he comes down, he comes down from Nazareth, down south, and goes to the Jordan River where John's baptizing. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then this description here is in all the Gospels, or at least the synoptics. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Then he goes to the temptation. Let's go now back to Matthew. Matthew gives us a bit more. And so does Luke. Matthew probably has the the most verses on this. As you can see just from the numbers up there. Matthew 3.13 Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. 
So we get already the idea that Jesus knew what he was doing. He didn't just stumble up and say, hey, what's going on? Will you please baptize me? He went there to be baptized by John. He knew that this was something that had to be done according to God's plan. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So he's, he's being immersed here and he's coming up. This is all the descriptions of baptism in the New Testament were by immersion. Fully under, he's coming now out of the water. The heavens are opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now Luke 3.21. Now it happened that when all the peoples were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. So this is more of a statement of fact. Mark and Matthew speak of Jesus coming up to be baptized. Here's, just, here's what happened. Luke is about reporting the history as it happened. And he just says, here's what happened. People were being baptized. Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying... So this is a new detail we didn't see in the others. The others just said it as he's coming up out of the water. This indicates that he's praying as he's being baptized. And while he's praying, which must have been verbally something people could hear. It's out loud. People often did not pray quietly in ancient times. They would pray. They would speak out loud to pray. Then heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. So Luke is very much about descriptions as to what happened. He says it was in a bodily form, but it was like a dove. A lot of denominations have a, a, a dove as their emblem, as their sort of their emblem for their denomination. You've probably heard and thought of it as a dove. It doesn't say it is a dove. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit is a dove, but the descent was like a dove. Not necessarily that the Spirit looked like a dove, but the descending down was, was very gentle. It wasn't forceful. It wasn't uh, lightning and thunder. It wasn't the, the, the Shekinah glory cloud. It wasn't like up on the mountain with Moses or even the transfiguration. There's a gentleness about this. There's a peace. There's the Spirit expressing Himself in such a way that people know the Spirit is descending on Him, but it's like a dove in its descent, not the Spirit looking like a dove. All the movie portrayals of Jesus shows a dove coming and landing on his shoulder or a dove-like thing. So this is important, the, not necessarily theologically, but as far as getting into the words and what they mean. The word is like or as. And it modifies the descent, not the, the way the Holy Spirit looked. And so he says, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So we've seen that statement quite a few times. Also, this mention of heaven opened. and this. So here's the problem. John the Baptist baptized people for the repentance of sin. That's clear in the Gospels, especially in Mark 1.4 and Acts 19.4. So in Mark, it tells us what, what John's doing out there. He, he's baptizing people as a sign of repentance. You say you've repented, confess your sins and repent, now be baptized, and then this repentance prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. And so Jesus is coming, prepare yourself, be ready, Jews, and be baptized. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
Messiah is coming. He's coming. He's right around the corner. Come out and be baptized. Show it publicly. And, and some of the Pharisees even wanted to be baptized because everybody was getting in on this. And he says, you know, who, who warned you, O Pharisees, from the wrath to come? You're, you're not repentant. You need to not be faking this. It needs to be real. And then Acts 19.4 points back to a disciple of John. Acts 19.4, then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So the Christian baptism is a baptism similar to John. You're saying when you get baptized as a Christian today, even that you're repentant of your sins. And in addition, now we have the resurrection. We have the death of Christ and the resurrection. So we say we have faith in Christ. And the testimonies you hear from the pulpit here are people expressing their faith in Christ, expressing their repentance of sins, and expressing now that they want to publicly confess that. And that's what baptism is about. So it's, it's more similar to what John was doing than what we see with Jesus, because did Jesus need to repent of his sin? Is that what he's doing out there? Is he like all these other people getting baptized on the Jordan? Is that why he was baptized? No. So why does he insist on it? Why does it have to happen? So forget the little Jeep truck in the background. This was a cartoon book somebody put together about the life of Jesus. And they cut out the image of Jesus just to not show basically a, an image that's not Jesus. And so in the background was this truck. But look at, there was, there was this cartoon figure of Jesus and right above his head, Talking about his baptism, I have come to the river today to wash my sins away, said Jesus. So be careful what your kids are reading. This isn't a popular kid's book, but it is sold on Amazon. Somebody picked it up and was reading it to their kids and noticed this heresy. Jesus saying, I came to get baptized and wash my sins away. So John baptized Jesus in the river Jordan. That's not what the Bible says. This is somebody's bad theology getting inserted into a children's book. And really denying the deity of Christ. This is what I have to say to that. You can't hear the volume, but what's wrong with you people? So here's some common reasons given. And and these kind of go from from bad to better. But still, I don't think any of these are sufficient. People say that he got baptized to start taking on sin for humans. This is in some of the commentaries you read on this passage. Others say it's to reenact Israel passing through the Red Sea. So sort of a symbol, they say, to to show what happened with Israel. Others say it's to confess sin on behalf of the nation. Jesus wasn't a sinner, but they, some say, well, he's, he's kind of doing the day of atonement thing and showing that Israel was, was a sinner. Israel was full of sin and needed to confess it. Others just say he showed up to support John and his ministry, although John has something different to say, right? John says, I must decrease. He must, he must increase. Sometimes, you know, we're all those who are Baptistic, believers' baptism, we, we use this one sometimes to, to give an example to follow, right? Follow in the way that Jesus was baptized by being baptized yourself. It's better to say to follow his commands for us to be baptized. You should follow his command and be baptized like he told us to do, rather than follow his example. Because our baptism, while it lo- would look like outwardly similar, Obviously, when the the heavens are open and the Spirit comes down, that's not the same. But the purpose was different too. And then the book even mentions here to identify with sinners like us. Um, That comes from the the class notes. I was in this professor's class who who added this. He he also said the things that I'm about to tell you, the the things the Bible says on this. I don't find 
anything in Scripture that says the baptism was to identify with sinners like us? I mean, he was fully human. That's enough right there. He was fully tempted, which we're about to see. So that identifies his humanity as, you know, being tempted and identifies him with us as humans. I don't think he needs to go through the baptism as well to do that. So what's the solution here? Well, John affirmed Jesus had no sin. Remember, he said, you're coming to baptize me. I, I need to be baptized by you. But then Jesus gives the answer, right? Matthew 3.15, we don't have to guess. So many questions that come up, the scripture clearly answers for us. And we just have to study what that passage means. Matthew 3.15, Jesus answered and said to them, permit it at this time. So Jesus understands this is irregular. Everybody else is getting baptized for repentance of sins. And he understands this is, John has a, a right idea here, right? Jesus should be the one doing something for John. But he says, permit it. Let, let it happen. Why? He says, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This needs to happen. John is the forerunner. John's out there baptizing everybody to prepare for Christ and the Messiah to come. And this now has to happen where the baptizer baptizes the Messiah to fulfill all righteousness. So that brings up the question, what does that verse mean, to fulfill all righteousness? And that's sort of where you get some of these uh, guesses. Righteousness is God's standard of what is right. So the best way to think of this is it's God's plan. God's plan for the Messiah. To fulfill God's plan for the Messiah. Okay, so to expand on that, I would say it this way. The completion of everything that is part of a relationship of obedience to God. Jesus, God the Son, will voluntarily submit himself to his Father's will to fulfill all the obligations that the Father has given him. Basically, his answer is like this. Because God said. Baptize me because God said to do it. And he doesn't give a, a dissertation, right? He doesn't give a, a long theological explanation. Like so many things in Scripture, it's just one short little phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. That's the reason. Now, we understand what righteousness is, God's standard for what is right, what is just. And we get the idea this is about God's sovereign plan, his decree of what would happen in the Messiah's life. And so expanding on that, we see a couple of other purposes that tie into this. So do this because this is God's plan for me. But the plan is that this baptism will mark a time in the ministry of Christ. It's a public sign to show John and the other people who are there, some of which will become Jesus' disciples of the twelve, to show them who the Messiah is. John's been talking about the Messiah. Now he has arrived. And that heaven opened and the Spirit descended and a voice came out of the sky. There's no more guessing at who this is. Look at John 1.33. There's no more wondering, which, which, which is he? Which of these people out here might the Messiah be? When is he coming? John 1.33. John says, As I, And I did not know him, but he who sent me, that's the Father, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John says, I'm baptizing with water, but there's one who's coming. He'll baptize with spirit and with fire. Believers will get the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers will get fire. 
And here's how you know he's what he, who he is. The God told, God told John the Baptist that you're going to see a spirit descending on him, the, spirit, the Holy Spirit, and abiding with him. And he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And John says, and I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So that's to tell everybody that's the one right there. All these miracles are happening around that baptism. Nobody else is getting baptized and having those kinds of miracles. And that also, number three, it announces the beginning of his public ministry. This is the public ministry. It's why it comes early in all the Gospels, because it is the announcing of his public ministry. We talk about Jesus, you know, living and ministering for 30 years or 33 years, depending on when you choose the the date of his birth. There's not a whole lot spoken of until his baptism. And then things really get rolling. Right? Then we have all this stuff happening, all these miracles, transfiguration, his preaching, his teaching. Before that, very little. And so the apostles recognize this is a, an occasion that's marked out as significant. In Acts 1.22, they're looking for somebody to take Judas's place. They need a twelfth, a twelfth apostle here. And here's how they decide. Verse 21, therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So we need somebody who is there with us in the ministry of Jesus. Now they're going to tell us, when did that start? Beginning with the baptism of John. That's when John baptized Jesus. Until ending with the day that he was taken from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So that's the public ministry of Jesus from the time that he's baptized until he ascends. And they're looking for a man who's been a disciple or follower of Jesus during that time. They find two men and they draw lots to figure out who that's going to be. So here's really the, the, three, the threefold purpose. It's all linked together, but to fulfill what God has said should be done a sign to show people this is the one because of what was happening and to inaugurate, announce the beginning of his public ministry. And all that's done with God saying, this is my son. He's clearly telling people this isn't just a king like David. This is the son of God. And God says he's well pleased with him. His, his blessing, God's blessing is upon the son, the Messiah. Any questions about the baptism of Jesus before we move on to the temptation? Yeah, that's not really related to Jesus' baptism, but they would disagree on like Presbyterians and those who believe in believers' baptism on immersion versus sprinkling. But it's clear that he went down into the water and came up. And we see that later with other baptisms. So, I mean, this could be used as an example of what baptism looks like. I think, because there's such a case that he's, he's under the water and then he comes up and all this stuff's going on, right? Holy Spirit's coming down, the sky's open. So very clear that it's, I mean, that's what baptism means to dunk. And we'll come to that next spring. We'll look at ecclesiology and the ordinances. And yeah, the word baptism means to immerse. Even John Calvin, who baptized and sprinkled babies, said that's what it means. It means to dunk underwater, but... We're not going to do it because we follow church tradition. So that's, that's jumping ahead, but it's good. Good, Carl. 
Let's look at the temptation. So all the accounts say that he went out into the wilderness for the temptation after this. So back to Mark 1, 12. Mark has the shortest here. And then Matthew and then Luke are much longer. That doesn't mean Mark wrote first, by the way. A lot of scholars and liberal scholars say, well, that, that, that proves Mark wrote first because, you know, things evolve over time. So you start out with the simplest thing and then like creatures, you know, and then they evolve into complex issues, complex things. That makes its way into the academy and people start saying, well, Mark, Mark wrote first. Church history says Matthew wrote first. And that's why our Bible start with the New Testament start with Matthew. Mark's purpose is different. That's why it's shorter. It's not because things evolve over time. That's taking too much of a man-centered approach to how the Bible was written. Matthew has a purpose. Mark has a little bit, little bit different purpose. And Luke has a little bit different purpose. All focused on Christ and his coming and what he did and his death and resurrection. Okay, Mark 1.12. And immediately the Spirit drove him. So remember that word. The Spirit drove him. We don't like that word, right? Some, some translations, I think the NASB has, says, compelled him. What about free will? Well, the Spirit compelled him and drove him. Like, the idea is like, with a, not literally here, but with a whip, you know? This is, this is not a, well, what do you think, Jesus? Do you want to go out to the wilderness or not? I mean, the Spirit drove him out. He's got to go right now, is the idea. And he drove him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Back to Matthew 4. By the way, all the commentaries, going back to this Mark issue, almost every commentary today talks about Mark being written first. And when I preach through Luke, half of every section was on who wrote first. Was it Mark, Luke, or Matthew? And this, this guy was arguing. It was good commentary, but I would just skip the first half of each section and go to the comments on the text and not read all the guesswork as to did Matthew steal from Mark or did Mark steal from Luke or did Luke steal from Mark and Matthew or is there some unknown document out there called Q and is it uh, ever going to be discovered someday and okay I'm getting off topic some of the textual critic nerds in here are having fun on that but I'll move on to the temptation here of Jesus Matthew 4 1 to 11 and Jesus was led, so this is not quite as strong of a term as compelled or drove out, but still that he was led by the Spirit, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Up, up, meaning up from the Jordan River, which is down low. He's coming up into the wilderness. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and said to him, stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will, break, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. 
Now let's go to Luke. So for Luke, I want to work through it a little bit more slowly. I've, I've preached on this passage. Luke's almost the same as Matthew. He just changes. Well, you could probably say Matthew changes it, but Luke and Matthew have different order of the, the last two uh, temptations. So either Matthew switches it or Luke. Typically, Luke's trying to go historical and Matthew is, is more thematic theological. That's fine. They're, they're the same account. It's just a matter of how you describe what happened. And you can do that in different orders and still both be true. So let's just back up a bit. He was led. Okay, so this is the setting here of the temptation. He's led by the Spirit or drove by the Spirit into the wilderness. The wilderness is, is a place without food. It's not necessarily like uh, the wilderness in Texas. It's more desert-like, but it's not sand dunes. The wilderness of Judea is it's just harsh. It's dry. There's wild animals there. Mark even makes the point that he was with the wild animals. Interesting that Mark points that out. Mark, usually being more succinct in his description, says that he's with the wild animals. Meaning, even the animal world, in a sense, is, could weaken him. Because you're, you're in fear for your life. There's no shelter. You're exposed to the heat. You're exposed to the cold at night in these desert places. And there's wild animals there looking for food. And after 40 days, you're looking pretty good to some of the wild animals. And in fact, they had bears and lions and things like that, even in the wilderness at that time. And it says he was tempted by Satan. This is the serpent in the garden tempting the second Adam. That's really what's going on here. Is, is, it's a comparison between what happened with Adam and Eve and what happened now with the second Adam, Jesus. Jesus will succeed where Adam and Eve failed. And it shows us his humanity, yes. It shows us that he's perfectly holy, yes. But it shows us most of all that the second Adam will actually succeed and reign over the earth where the first Adam failed and brought sin and destruction and death into the world. So if we look at this, compare this, you'll see on the left the temptation and on the right the response. So these are the, the points here are how I summarize the temptation, but I don't think too many people would, would disagree with that. You can see Matthew 2 and 3 being, or Matthew's number 2 and number 3 being switched with Luke. But let's look at these in Luke now. Starting Luke 4, the devil says to him in verse 3, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So that is a temptation to deny God's provision. Aren't you hungry after 40 days, Jesus? Go ahead and, and use your powers to create food. The Father, the Father's not going to provide for you. You can do this yourself. You don't need the Father. So it's a denial that God would provide. It's a denial that, that the Spirit is even with him. The Spirit is with him the whole time. That God's not going to take care of you. And how does Jesus respond? He quotes the Bible every single time. In fact, it's Deuteronomy, which is the law. He quotes the law to Satan. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Or there's a lesson right here for your temptation. When Satan tempts you, when the world tempts you, when your own flesh is, you're tempting yourself, recall scripture. Memorize verses that, that fight the temptations you suffer with, the temptations you struggle with. You need to know Bible verses. If just for this, I mean, there's a lot of other uses for Bible verses, but this is what Jesus does. I mean, he's got the sword of the Spirit out and he is poking at Satan. Get away from me. So the idea with the first one is you can't trust God to feed you. 
And he says, look, man doesn't live on bread alone. There's something even more important than food. The word of God and God himself. And so this is coming from Deuteronomy where Moses is reminding the people before they go into the promised land of the commands of God. The second one, and now Satan is going to try something different. So he leads him up to show him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So he's up on a high mountain somewhere. And, and whether this is a vision or whether he physically takes Jesus onto a mountain, which is probably the case here. And he just, he shows him a snapshot of everything that's going to happen in uh, history and the dominions of the world. So everything is there. And he says, I will give you all this dominion and its glory. For it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. So yes, in a sense, he's the prince of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He has a certain delegated ability to rule the world in the sense of uh, lead the world into sin, and control the kings. And you see this in the book of Daniel where there's a prince uh, of Persia and so on, these demonic angels who influence the kings and, and emperors and so on. So he says, here's the key. If you worship before me, it shall all be yours. You can have everything just deny the Lord and worship Satan. So this is the escape plan, right? He says the temptation here is to escape God's plan. In other words, have everything, have the crown, rule the world. You don't have to go to the cross. Do it now. Skip all that bad stuff that's coming because Jesus knew it was coming. He knew the cross was coming. You can skip all the pain. You can skip all the wrath of sinners being poured out. The wrath of God on the cross for three hours. We cries out to the Father. You can skip all that. Just get the crown now. All you got to do is bow down to Satan. It's not that big a deal, right? What does Jesus say? It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Let's get out of here, Satan. This is ridiculous. You know, we worship God and God alone. That's who we worship. So Deuteronomy 6.13. And then the last one, uh, verse 9. He led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. So now Satan's wisened up. He says, I can quote scripture too. Satan knows more scripture than, than we do. Uh, it doesn't mean he believes it, right? But it just goes to show you, you can know your Bible and know theology but not be a believer. That's not the, the sign of a believer. Now, as believers, we should love the Bible and theology, but Satan knew a lot of Bible. And so he starts throwing it back at Jesus. He will command his angels concerning to guard you. I mean, come on. It says in the Bible, the angels will, will take care of you. And it also says on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So it already says they're going to take care of you. Just, just throw yourself off. So this is a test. It's a temptation to abuse God's power. Because God has promised to do something, then we can go ahead and do it, right? I mean, God said we can't fall as Christians, so let us go into sin. Romans 6, right? God said that grace abounded all the more, so let us sin all the more to make God look better by letting his grace show us more grace. And Paul says, may it never be in the New Testament. That's similar to what Jesus says here. So the idea Satan is tempting him is, go ahead and force God's hand. Demand a miracle. Because if the angels show up and he's on the pinnacle of the temple and he, he throws himself off and he's going to go down into the Kidron Valley, that's clearly going to kill him. 
And so the angels will show up. There will be a miracle to save you. Go ahead. It's no big deal. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's it. The devil left him. Now in, I think it was Matthew's account, he says, away, get away, get away from me. Go away, Satan. But here it just says the devil left him after he had finished every temptation. And he left him until an opportune time, Luke says. An opportune time. There's going to be a time when Satan's going to come back and he's looking for this time. And I think it's, it's in the garden. It's leading up to the cross. But it's different than these temptations. So it's not specified as to what's going on from Satan's standpoint. Anyway, here we have these three. So these are the three temptations of Christ. We, we also are tempted by the same ones. Right? Deny God's provision. I mean, we, we know we're tempted by that. God's not going to take care of us. We've got to take such and such an action. And sometimes that action is a sin. You know, you, you hear it even in churches, right? Well, God didn't raise up any men, so the women are just going to take charge and be pastors. And, it, and it's very pragmatic like that, Right? I mean, if God's not going to raise up male pastors and they're all going to sit at home and not come to church, then the women will become pastors. There are others. We, individually, we do similar things, right? I had to do it. I had to do this. You know, I had to do it to survive. Escape God's plan. We don't want to go through suffering. We'll take the easy route. Even though the easy route might be sinful, it might lead us into more temptation. We're, we run from the pain that we think might come or that Lord, the Lord might be taking us through. And man, this tempting to abuse God's power. You know, I've already talked about the let us sin so that grace may abound all the more. There's also this great demand for miracles. And there's all this false stuff that's going on with the healing, the healers, the faith healers. Give your money and you'll be healed and so on. And the church is just eating that up too much. All right, let's look now at how Adam did with these. Okay, so back in Genesis 3. Eve is tempted by Satan, and she was tempted to deny God's provision. God said, don't eat from the, the, the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat everything else, but don't eat from that tree. They didn't even have to go through 40 days of fasting, right? They had it all. You could just walk along and get anything you wanted to eat. There's just one tree in all the garden. Satan shows up, and he says, did God really say you couldn't eat from that tree? Man, he's so restrictive. God just wants to restrict you. And she says, huh, yeah, this... This tree, the fruit looks good. She saw that the tree was good for food. The temptation was that God had been restrictive, that he had denied Adam and Eve something. And then they, of course, fell into that sin. That was their response. Not to quote what God had said. She tries to, to quote what God had said, but she messes it up. I think Satan's already gotten into her mind at that point. Not, not literally, but affected her thinking. So that she changes the word of God when she repeats it to him. But she saw the tree was good for food. Secondly, the temptation to escape God's plan. She saw it was a delight to the eyes. She saw it was a delight to the eyes. This, this looks good. I mean, how can this be bad? God said don't eat from it, but it looks so good. It, you know, God wants me to do this. We've all heard probably professing Christians say that, right? God just wants me to get a divorce and marry this other person that I've been cheating on my husband with. I mean, that's what God wants. I've heard that in counseling. Uh, God wants me to do this. God, God has basically told me without verbally telling me that he wants me to do this sin. 
Well, she saw it was delight to the eyes. So she failed that test and Adam with her. And then uh, lastly, to abuse God's power, she saw it was desirable to make one wise. God would have taught them the difference between good and evil in his own timing. God would have showed them everything they needed. But Satan said, look, God's withholding something. God doesn't want you to be like him and know the difference between good and evil. But if you eat from this tree, you'll have that ability. You'll have something like the power of God. You'll be little gods like Satan wanted to be. He wanted to be God. And she thought it was desirable to make one wise. So there's the three things in Genesis 3. And I think those line up well. It certainly lines up well with 1 John 2.16, which then lines up well with the temptations of Jesus. So 1 John 2.16, let me just read it to you in context here. You're probably familiar with the, the three temptations of the world. These also, you could say, are inside of us, come from our own selves, tempting ourselves, according to James 1, and from Satan, who rules over the world. So 1 John 2.16 for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Okay, so now we're expanding Jesus' temptations. Where We've looked at Genesis 3. Now let's look at 1 John 2.16. Well, she says it was good for food. So that's the flesh. That's the body. I need food. Come on, God. I mean, yeah, you've given us all this stuff. We're tired of eating. We, we, want, the, we want the good stuff that says the forbidden fruit. And that's a temptation similar to what Jesus received from Satan. You can, you can make your own food. You've been hungry for 40 days? Come on, Jesus. You can make your own food. Just turn these rocks into bread. He passed. They failed. John warned us in 1 John to stay away from that temptation. To escape God's plan, Eve said it was delight to the eyes. John talks about the lust of the eyes. So those obviously match up. And then thirdly, to abuse God's power. We don't have the power that Jesus had to turn stone to bread, but there was this temptation that Eve had and Adam to make one wise, to know the difference between good and evil is to be like God in that sense. And I think that lines up with 1 John 2, 16, the boastful pride of life. I want to be like God. That, that's really the, the first sin. And it's really the root of all sin is pride. It's going to be a big part of the message today. This idea that pride, that we want to be like God, that we want to be more than we are, that we want to be greater and, and have control over the world like God does. Boastful pride of life. It, it sounds like this today. How dare God tell me what to do? How dare God confine me into this little a strict religious thing. I want to do what I want. That's what the world is doing. They follow all of these. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And so uh, Jesus was tempted in that way. But he passed. He did not sin. So that brings up the big question. Was Jesus able to sin? Maybe if he couldn't sin in an action, could he sin in his thought life? Because that's a place of sin too. Today, everybody tells you, as long as you don't do the thing, it's not sinful. The Bible says, if you think the wrong thing, it's sinful. If you think sinful thoughts, that's sin. Today, it says, well, as long as you don't act out your same-sex attractions, then you're not sinning. The Bible says, if you lust after anything that is not what God has told us is good and true and what we should do, 
is sinful, whether that's adultery, same-sex relationships, and so on. Could he have sinned in those ways? If not, then how was this even a real temptation? I mean, was this just a fake temptation if he couldn't really sin? Now, the second question assumes a lot. It assumes you have to be able to sin for it to be a real temptation. I think that's a wrong assumption. But let's look at the first question first. So there's two views on this idea. Could Jesus have sinned? One is called peccability from the Latin verb to sin, peccare. Peccability. He was able to not sin, which might sound better than it really is. All this means is Jesus could have sinned, but he, he was holy. He kept himself from it. So this view is not arguing that Jesus did sin, but they're arguing that he could have sinned. He just followed the Lord so well and, and was so holy and sanctified that he didn't. The other view is impeccability. He was not able to sin because he's God, right? Most of church history has held to number two. There's a few people who want to make Jesus more like us and really push into this idea that this was a sin that he could have fallen into. So he's this great example. And so there's a few that have followed this uh, view number one. But I think uh, I'm going to show you view number two is the right view. He was not able to sin. Still a real temptation, but he could not have sinned. Why? Well, he's God. There's no darkness, right? There's no, there's, there's no shadow. He's pure light. God is pure light. He, if he's the son of God, he's divine. He's deity, right? He is God. God can't sin. And you can say, well, that was his humanity. Well, it's the person of Christ. One person, we looked at this last week. One person, two natures. So if the humanity sins, then the person sins. And the humanity cannot sin because it's united with deity and the hypostatic union. Decrees of God cannot be overturned. So God sent a Savior. The Savior has to be perfectly righteous, live a righteous life, and die in our place so that that righteous can be attributed to our account and our sins on his account. What happens if Jesus could have sinned? Jesus could have sinned. It would have overturned the whole thing. I mean, God's just rolling the dice. I'm going to send my son. I hope he doesn't sin. Just roll the dice and see what happens. That's not the case at all. Also, the divine immutability. We studied this last semester on the attributes of God. God cannot change. God does not change. God does not go through changes. He doesn't sin. He doesn't repent of sin and so on. And so... Just because he takes on flesh doesn't mean the deity change. And if Christ is God, then he cannot sin. Now, these are all really just looking at his deity here. Trinitarian relationship of Christ. The Spirit was with him. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. And one theologian said the Spirit could not fail what he had been sent to do. The Spirit is upon him. Certainly his whole life, but we see that specifically at the baptism and then going into the wilderness. So the Spirit's with him. The Father has decreed this would happen. It upsets the whole Trinitarian relationship to say that Christ could have sinned and thrown this all out of whack. But was it a real temptation? Yes. Mainly because the Scripture says it was a real temptation. Let's look at Hebrews. So, this is how you do theology. You take these verses that say he's deity, he's the son of God, and God cannot sin, and God cannot change, and God cannot lie, and he was really tempted. And now you have to hold both of those together as best you can. 
And the Bible says we must. This is where a lot of speculation can come in between those. But we have to be careful and just take the Bible at its word. Take the word at its word. 2.18 For since he himself was tempted, there it is. He was tempted in that which he has suffered. He's able to come to help to those who are tempted. So it doesn't say he was tempted and could have sinned, so be like him. The idea is he showed us how to be holy. He was tempted. He went through that. And he did not sin so he can make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the verse right before that. This also qualifies him to be the high priest. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Yeah, he's the son of God, but it's not as if he was never tempted in the flesh. He was. We have one, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So not only in this temptation, but throughout his whole life, he was tempted in all the major categories of sin. Not every single sin that's ever been invented. But there's only certain categories of sin, right? We just saw the threefold division, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. So you can divide sin up into those three categories. You can subdivide it even further. He was tempted in all the different ways that humans are tempted, but without sin. So he did not sin. So how was it a real temptation? Well, it was because the Bible says it was. But one way to think about it is, uh, you know, a little toddler can run up and hit me on the leg. But that's not really going to defeat me, right? That toddler, in, in their mind, I mean, they think it's going to work. Makes you wonder kind of what, what was Satan thinking when he tempted Jesus? He must have known it wasn't going to work, but he still did it, right? That kind of gets into the whole thinking of, of Satan. Knowing the scriptures, knowing... Of course, all of them were not written at that time, so he couldn't know the future. But knowing what the Old Testament said, uh, he should have known better. Uh, But also, you know, another way it's been described is a a little tugboat can come up against a great battleship and think that it's going to somehow win the fight, but it's not. That doesn't stop the tugboat from attacking the battleship. So uh, a couple of ways to think about that. But it was a real temptation. Uh, You can experience temptation without sinning. And I like what the the book brings this out. Uh, Even though Jesus could not sin, the temptations he faced were genuine. Their reality did not depend on his ability to respond. So he doesn't have to be able to sin for them to be real temptations. That's hard for us to fathom because it's always like that for us, right? We can sin and the temptations seem different, but they're the same temptations. He was not able to sin them. Need, since he never yielded to them, he endured their full force. I don't know if that says need. Who's, did I get a typo here? Oh, we'll go on. Y'all can look it up for me if you got a book. Thus, temptation for Jesus was more real. Here's why I quoted this. It's more real and more powerful than for any other human being. How's that? Well, because the temptation just keeps coming. For us, we eventually give in. And the temptation's over. Now we're into the sin. For him, he keeps resisting and it just keeps coming. The intensity is greater. The intensity is greater. More real, more powerful. Okay? Yeah. You took, you took on flesh. Now I'm going to try the same thing I tried with Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Not in the way that we believe it. Yeah. I mean, he, he knows that they're the word of God. He, he knows that it's the word of God. 
And, and he knows, you know, that it's got to come to pass, but he still thinks he can change things. Whereas uh, a believer believes in the promises of God by faith. Satan does not do that. So as far as, you know, what's going through his mind, why is he doing these, knowing that scriptures say, especially now that the whole Bible has been completed, we can't, we can only speculate there. But we are going to come to angelology, and we'll talk a lot about what the Bible has to say about Satan. All right, another quote here. This is from Dabney's Systematic Theology. He says, Since the humanity never was, in fact, alone, the question whether, if alone, it would have been peccable, like Adam is idle. So people say, well, he, his humanity could have sinned, and if it was without the deity, of course it could have sinned. And, and Dabney says, you know, that's pointless, because it never was without the deity. I mean, that two natures, one person. And then he says, second, it's impossible that the person constituted in union with the eternal and immutable word can sin. So the humanity united with the deity cannot sin. That's, that's the fact of what we're looking at here, not some hypothetical, what, let's take his humanity and split it off. For this union is an absolute shield to the lower nature against error. So even though the, the deity and humanity is not an intermixing of natures, there's two natures, one person, the deity is completely, of course, able to prevent the humanity from falling into sin. And that's why he could not have sinned. Questions on that? Got any insights on that? Yeah, in some way, he, Satan doesn't, he's not able to do the things that he does without being on a leash. So, yeah. And, and Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift Peter like wheat. So, there's a permission needed there. And that's where the Spirit driving him into the wilderness implies that, right? This is about to happen. The Spirit's making this happen. Satan's power is very limited, yeah but more powerful than sometimes we realize. He's, he's on a leash. Martin Luther said, the devil's God's devil. You know, he's on a leash. He can only do so much so far for so long. And then he's, then he's thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. But, you know, right now he's on that leash. Okay, let's look at the transfiguration with the time we have. I just want to look. Let's look at one account because they're, they're pretty much the same. Let's go to Luke, because Luke adds a word in Greek that's not found in the others. That's, that's a big difference. Not, not really, but the, the word he uses in Greek ties to the Old Testament. So Luke 9.28. Now it happened some eight days after these words that taking along Peter and John and James, so the inner three, he went up on the mountain to pray. And it happened while he was praying. So that's something Luke points out. This is not the word I was going to show you, but Luke does add that. As Jesus is coming up from his baptism, he's praying. As Jesus is transfigured, he's praying. As he's in the garden, he's praying. So Luke really stresses the prayer life of Jesus in his account. He said, The appearance of Jesus' face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure. Remember the word departure which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. So what are they talking about? They're talking about his ascension. He's about to depart this earth. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, as you can imagine they were, they saw his glory 
and the two men standing with him. So this is one of those situations where the glory is no longer veiled for a moment. We talked about the kenosis from Philippians 2 a few weeks ago. He took on humanity. He took on flesh. He walked among us. His, his glory was veiled. But there's a few times in Scripture and the New Testament that speaks of his glory being unveiled. This is one of them. And it happened that as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. So the problem there is he thinks, hey, let's just camp out here. I mean, why do we need to go anywhere else? You, you've come to the earth. Now you're revealing your glory. Let's get this thing started. We're going to get this kingdom rolling here. Let's make us some tabernacles up here. And while he's saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered this cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. God saying, it's not time yet, Peter. You listen to what he tells you to do. You don't try to do your own thing. You don't try to, you know, get behind me, Jesus. I'll never let you go to the cross. No, you listen to him. Peter didn't learn that until after the resurrection. So let's break this down. Seven lessons from the transfiguration here. Jesus has the appearance of God. When we talk about the transfiguration, the glory, that's usually what we think of. But there's other things going on here. It's not just that his glory is expressed. I mean, that's, that's a big thing. We would have never forgotten that. Peter says in his, in his letter, I think it's 2 Peter. Is it 2 Peter? We were eyewitnesses to his glory. We were eyewitnesses to his glory. And Peter never forgot that, even in old age when he wrote that. Also, he's speaking with the law and the prophets, Elijah and Moses, right? What do they represent? The law and the prophets. What's he talking about? His departure, literally the Greek word is exodus, his exodus. And they're talking about what's coming up. So there's, there's probably some encouragement. There's some discussion about this. And the word exodus points us back to the Old Testament when, when God brought out Israel from Egypt, from slavery through the Red Sea and all the miracles that, that came with that and brought them to the promised land. So Jesus is about to have an exodus as well. He's going to go through death and the cross and the wrath of God being poured out. And three days in the tomb and then be resurrected and then serve out some more time on the earth teaching and then ascend and depart to the heavenly throne room. Also, the Shekinah cloud is present. Luke just says it's a cloud, but Matthew 17, 5 has a lot more to say, or a little bit more. Let's, let's put it that way. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice came out of the cloud. Where else in the Bible do we have a big cloud and a voice coming out? Thunder and lightning. Where does that start? Mount Sinai, right? The, delivering the law. And then there's a cloud that follows and a, fire, a pillar of fire by night and a, and a cloud of glory by day as they leave Egypt and, and go on their trek from the Exodus. So, uh, yeah, this, this is often thought of by theologians as being the Shekinah cloud. This is God on the mountain, the Father speaking to His Son, and it's frightening to the, to the apostles who were there. They understand this God is right here with us. The affirmation, this is my son. So we saw that when? Baptism? Well, we see it again here, don't we? This is my son. Also, it's my chosen one. 
Luke 9, 35. This is my chosen one. This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior you've been looking for. It's the Son of God. It's the promised suffering servant Messiah. And you need to listen to him. That comes up a lot in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to Moses. Listen to God's law as Moses gives it. Listen to him. He is the ultimate prophet. He's talking to the law and the prophets. He is the one that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy, the ultimate prophet that would come. And Moses said, you will listen to him. He is the great prophet to come. And so that's more than just his glory, which is glorious and the transfiguration. There's a lot going on that's being emphasized by this text. And there's a lot of, of purposes being described and unfolded here. All right, that's enough for today. Next week, we'll look at the filling of the Spirit in Christ's life and just the Spirit's ministry to the Son. And then we'll keep moving on through the arrest and trials. Oh, that's like two messages right there, the arrest and trials. But I'll try to get it all in one because there's not just one trial. There's a lot of trials that he goes through, some more secular with the Romans and then some more religious with the Sadducees and Pharisees. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. I pray that we've learned something that encourages us about our Lord Jesus. Let us be like him. Let us pursue holiness, know scriptures, fight off temptation, and most of all, worship him as our Lord and Savior. Amen.